0: And welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of sci War, Conspiratainment, and The Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visuview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-V-V-I-E-W, all one word.blogspot.com. .blogspot.com. And to a copy of that book, out of other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the Farm Podcast, all one word, thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hot spots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, folks. Sad to say it's just me for this outing, but i'll try and make it up to you with a novel subject i know some of you have been missing the albacore series and no we aren't returning to it for this show per se but i am going to cover one of the most curious murders in the history of los angeles which is saying something so You're getting a little bit of L.A. noir here, in addition to a killing linked to the whole storied Laurel Canyon scene, which Dave McGowan has addressed uh, quite extensively. And if that's not enough, it has also had an influence on two of my favorite movies of 1984, the original Ghostbusters movie and the cult classic Repo Man, all stemming from this particular murder so hopefully that's juicy enough for you and if it's not i've also got a bunch of stuff on the process church of final judgment Crowley, scientology oh gosh you name it well you'll see anyway let's get going here <laughs> The story begins on March 3rd, 1983. On that day, the body of musician Peter Ivers was found bludgeoned to death in his apartment located in L.A.'s Little Tokyo district. During this time frame, i.e. the late 1970s and early 1980s, this particular region had witnessed an influx of artists looking to take advantage of the cheap rent. But part of the reason the rent was so cheap is because of the crime. Little Tokyo is about a half a mile from Skid Row. And while never quite on that level of debauchery, Little Tokyo had a rough reputation by the early 1980s. Hence, there is a distinct possibility that Ivers was murdered by a random assailant this was the general consensus of the los angeles police department roughly 80 homicides a year happened in the area ivers resided in at the time the thinking was that ivers death was the result of a botched robbery by a local drug addict who later himself expired from an overdose or something to that effect and again there is a lot of merit to this Ivers did not have a lot of possessions at the time of his death, and not a lot worth of much money. One exception was his stereo equipment, which was missing, though again, this was not worth a considerable amount of money. And Ivers' cavalier attitude towards his residency further bolstered the possibility that he was murdered by a random assailant. Despite living in a heavy crime area, he was known to leave his door unlocked regularly, for instance. However, many of Ivers' associates long questioned this narrative. For one, Ivers' door was found locked from the inside. Police theorized that the door was either jimmied or that the burglar came in through a window. But Ivor's was known as a light sleeper, Further, he had not succumbed to the whole rock-and-roll lifestyle. Despite being a slight frame, he was a former college athlete who was still in excellent physical condition at 36 years old. He'd wrestled in competitions in school and become a black belt in karate during the 1970s. He was no slouch, in other words. The general consensus amongst friends is that if Ivers had interrupted a burglary being committed by a local junkie, it's much more likely that the junkie would have been the one beaten to death rather than Ivers. Whoever committed the crime appears to have been aware that Ivers was quite formidable in a fight. Upon entering the apartment, they appear to have made a beeline for him in bed and slammed a baseball bat into his skull just as he was sitting up. Nor did the assailant stop there. Ivor's body was badly beaten, reportedly with his head being split open like a watermelon, indicating that the perpetrator invested some time in this activity. This tends to imply that the assault was personal. The initial blow surely would have made Ivers quite woozy if not unconscious, but instead of taking the speaker and fleeing, then, they hung around to deliver blow after blow to Ivers. Further mudding the waters is the conduct of the LAPD. When police arrived on the scene, one of Ivers' teachers, a professor, had led 15 or so of his students over the crime scene, and there were many other friends who also showed up. This was described, uh, the whole thing with the students was described as an art school field trip, no less. So, they're coming to a murder scene as an art school field trip, along with a bunch of other survivors' of buddies. And even after police arrived, they failed to secure the scene on the basis that it was already contaminated. In many ways... This meant that the investigation was literally doomed from the very beginning. And finally, Ivers kept some very interesting company. He was one of those fabulous LA characters with one foot in elite circles and the other in the underworld. He effortlessly transitioned from Hollywood circles to the punk underground... While never a success, he had written hit singles for other people, including The Pinter Sisters, Marty Balin, and Diana Ross. He also took on gigs scoring films. This led to his most well-known work, his contribution to David Lynch's Eraserhead, including The Song in Heaven, The Lady in the Radiator Song, which Lynch had written the lyrics to and which Ivers had apparently done the music for. He also scored uh, Eraserhead, or at least parts of it, in addition to Ron Howard's Grand Theft Auto and several other films. But at the time of his death, he was most well-known as the host of the USA Network's New Wave Theater. So, New Wave Theater has been described as the number one show of its kind, with an estimated 25 million viewers on 1,800 cable systems at its peak. This is probably an exaggeration, but there's no question its influence has been profound. New Wave Theater was basically MTV before MTV worked out a stick, and much of that came from ripping off New Wave Theater. It also It's also what fueled the breakout of punk and new wave in the U.S. during the early 1980s. The gifts were a veritable who's who at the L.A. punk scene, including Bad Religion, Fear, X, Black Flag, Circle Jerk, the Dead Kennedys, and the Blasters. Alright, I'm kidding about the Blasters, though they did contribute the glorious Dark Knight song on the From Dust Till Dawn soundtrack, always a favorite of mine, but there were also new wave bands on there as the title implies. And on the whole, as far as new wave theater is concerned, its direction and editing arguably laid the groundwork for a lot of the contemporary music video format and certainly MTV's whole VJ thing. So these endeavors brought Ivers into a lot of circles, Uh, everyone from studio heads to strung-out punks and skid row. inevitably, he cannot be all things to all people and ruffled a few feathers along the way, some more than others. But friends have long maintained at least a few of these individuals had motive and the drive to murder Peter Ivers. So, before we go any further... We need to ask the same question that the detectives did when they first arrived at the murder scene. Who was this Peter Hyper's guy? Well, that is an interesting story. He hailed originally from the Boston area, uh, specifically the affluent suburb of Brookline. So this is located right next to Harvard. Some of the celebrated families who resided in Brookline at times included the Whitneys and the Kennedys. JFK and RFK were both born in Brookline. Reportedly, Ivers was given an intelligence test by Harvard as a child and was declared a genius. As such, he was probably in some version of the gifted program, though I've not been able to confirm this. Regardless, this got him into Roxbury Latin, the nation's oldest continuously running preparatory school and one of the most exclusive from there he ends up in harvard proper and he majors classical languages greek and latin because he was that kind of guy ivers was also a member of the influential signet society founded in 1870 it began as an exclusive harvard literary society but as time went on it embraced all the arts. Members have included T.S. Eliot, Robert Frost, Norman Mailer, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Tommy Lee Jones, Natalie Portman, William James, James B. Conant, who uh, was also involved in the whole Connacht Committee and ufology. for those of you unaware. Good old Jay Rockefeller, my longtime state senator here in West Virginia. Hamilton Fish Jr., Casper Weinberger, a Secretary of Defense under Ronnie Reagan, and two presidents, both of them Roosevelts, Theodore and Franklin. It was at the Signet Society Ivers rubbed elbows with such figures as Donald Graham, the son of Washington Post owner Catherine Graham. Catherine the Great's links to the CIA have been much speculated upon over the years. Regardless, she was one of the most powerful media figures of her day. Her son was the publisher of The Post from 1979 until 2000, and he's still the de facto owner of The Graham Holding Company to this day. He was also a member of the Facebook board from 2009 to 2015, and inevitably has attended a Bilderberg conference or two in his day. I'm sure many of you are wondering about Ivor's possible links to some of the intrigues playing out at Harvard. I'm of course referring to Timothy Leary's psychedelic evangelicalism and the work of his mentor, the OSS veteran and Harvard professor Henry Murray. Murray conducted a series of psychological experiments between 1959 and 1962 that involved Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Murray was also a major figure in developing personality profiles and may have also overseen Larry's psychedelic research at Harvard. But Murray retired in 1962 and Larry was sacked the following year. Ivers didn't start attending Harvard until 1964, by which time many of these shenanigans had ceased, at least officially. This was also where Ivers acquired his lifelong love of the blues and the harmonica, which he became especially adept at. Ivers released his debut album, the commercial flop, Night of the Blue Communion, in 1969, a year after graduation. Despite his perpetual inability to launch his musical career, The connections Ivers acquired at Harvard assured his place in the entertainment industry for years to come. Among the most noteworthy was Tim Mayer, a playwright, stage director, and sometimes lyricist. Mayer, or Meyer possibly, contributed lyrics to Ivers' first album and to later efforts by James Taylor, among others. Another big figure that uh, Ivers encountered was director Tim Hunter. Hunter has a very interesting CV, to put it mildly. He directed one of the most disturbing underground movies of the 1980s, and a personal favorite of mine, one which, ironically, I was just discussing at, at uh, Strange Realities 2023, and that would be River's Edge. Uh, great uh, and Chilling Turn by Dennis Hopper in that one. Hunter also directed the adaptation of S.E. Hinton's texts, and in more recent years, he helmed the Breath Easton Ellis penned Smiley Face Killers. Hunter is more well known for his TV work, which is equally compelling. Over the years, He's directed episodes of Eerie Indiana, Carnival, Deadwood, Caprica, American Horror Story, Colt, The Blacklist, and Riverdale. That's a pretty occulted list of TV shows, to put it mildly. And that's not including the gig that really established his reputation on TV. Directing episodes of Twin Peaks during its initial run. So this makes it all the more interesting that Hunter later turned up, turns up directing shows like Erie, Indiana, Carnival, Rivaldale, all of which are heavily influenced by Twin Peaks, to put it mildly. And it's likely Hunter is how Ivers became involved with David Lynch in the first place. Hunter was awarded a fellowship at the American Film Institute's Center for Advanced Film Studies in 1971. This spurred him to relocate to L.A. that year. Hunter asked Ivers to join him so that he could score uh, films for him. Ivers took him up on the offer and appears to have encountered Lynch in L.A. by 1972. Lynch and Ivers seem to have uh, encountered one another through the AFI circles, further bolstering the possibility that Hunter made the introductions. Lynch was in the same AFI fellowship as Hunter and took classes with him in 1971. But to return to Ivers at Harvard, possibly his closest friend on the campus was Douglas Kinney. While at Harvard, Kinney was the editor of the Harvard Lampoon, where he displayed an uncanny comedic talent. After graduating from Harvard in 1968, Kinney co-founded the storied National Lampoons. Kinney worked on the magazine from 1970 to 1977 in various editorial capacities, and he also wrote much of the magazine's early material. During Kinney's stewardship, it became a pop culture staple in the United States, fundamentally changing the face of comedy in the process. Soon Hollywood beckoned, and in 1978, Kenny oversaw National Lampoon's transition to the big screen when he co-wrote the classic Animal House. Kenny followed this film up in 1980 with Caddyshack. It was also during that year that he died at the age of 33. There is some dispute as to whether his death was accidental or a suicide, Kinney was prone to bouts of depression and was in a deep funk over the negative reviews Caddyshack was receiving at the time of his death. Uh, Chevy Chase took him to Hawaii to unwind. Kinney went hiking on a 35-foot cliff called, called the Happen Pepe Valley Lookout, I believe, on August 27th. There, he either slipped or jumped, resulting in his death, as the story goes. It was through Kenny that Ivers became acquainted with many of the rising comedians of the day, most notably John Belushi and Harold Ramis. These two later became frequent guests on New Wave Theater. While not as close, Ivers also developed a friendship with the likes of Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, and Dan Aykroyd. We'll be returning to this milieu in a moment, so do keep all these connections in mind. Probably the most important connection Ivers made at Harvard, however, was his longtime girlfriend Lucy Fisher. After graduating from Harvard, Lucy moved followed Ivers to L.A. There, she first secured a gig as a script reader for the United Artists. She continued to climb the ladder at MGM, where she was an executive story editor. But her big break uh, came when she became a vice president of Twentieth Century Fox in 1979. She rose through the ranks rapidly there, and by year's end, she was handpicked by Francis Ford Coppola to serve as head of production at his recently launched Zootrope Studio. There were even rumors at the time that Coppola and Fisher were romantically involved, which strained her relationship with Ivers. After Zootrope went bankrupt in 1981, Fisher ended up at Warner Brothers. There, her boss was Steve Ross, who was Stanley Kubrick's main contact with the studio, and Kubrick and Ross were extremely close. In fact, Ross was probably his closest contact in Hollywood. So it's interesting that this was her boss when she started working at Warners, where she was at for 14 years. She oversaw a variety of hits at the studio, including Gremlins, Goonies, and The Witches of Eastwick which were personal favorites of mine, hence the reason why I selected these out of her CV. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So, Ivers and Fishers have settled in L.A. by the early 1970s. They frequent several iconic locations. Reportedly, Ivers was obsessed with Schwab's Pharmacy, Besides selling medicines, this joint sold ice cream dishes, light meals, and of course coffee, because this is L.A. Founded in 1932, it was kind of a prototype for a life story diner culture. For decades, it was closely connected to Hollywood, with actors and other industry types making up the core of its clientele. It was Ivor's go-to haunt when he wanted to eat out. Ironically, it shuttered its, its doors for good in October 1983, a little over seven months after Ivor's murder. On a synchronistic level, this is fascinating. So if you've ever seen the classic really wider film, uh, Wilder film, Sunset Boulevard, then you're already familiar with this place. Screenwriter Joe Gillis, played by William Holden, is a regular at Swabs in the movie. It's implied his young love interest, Betty Shaver, is also a regular there. There are some curious parallels between Ivers' life and the film Beyond Schwab's. Ivers wasn't a writer at first, but a musician, though he did later take up screenwriting. But like Gillis, he never quite catches on. A hit record always eluded Ivers, much like screenwriting jobs are always slipping through Giles' grasp. Giles ends up becoming a de facto gigolo for Norma Desmond, played by the glorious Gloria Swanson, a faded silent film star. Ivers was long rumored to have secured so many contacts in Hollywood, partly due to romps with the wives of studio executives. There was even some speculation that a jealous husband may have been behind the murders. And Ivers was also suspected of possibly being bisexual, so... Maybe it was directly a studio head, as most of them were men at this time. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Norma Desmond of Sunset Boulevard, of course, murders William Holden's character, Joe Gillis, when he tries to leave her. And Ivers actually sold a treatment for a script that he co-wrote with Ron Taylor shortly before his murder, so he had taken on the whole mantle of becoming a screenwriter at the time of his death. Betty Shaver is actually an even more apt comparison for Lucy Fisher. Again, the Betty Shaver character was uh, Joe Kyle's uh, younger love interest in Sunset Boulevard. Betty Shaver, much like Lucy Fisher, cut her teeth in Hollywood as a script reader. They both aspire to attain higher ground in Hollywood. Shaver wants to become a screenwriter while Fisher strives to become an executive. And they're both smitten with a man, well, talented may ultimately be a hindrance to their aspiration and they both essentially start at the bottom in hollywood and work their way up so i can't help but wonder if david lynch pondered these curiosities the crucial plot point in sunset boulevard is driven by an unseen character named gordon cole of course that's the name lynch would later use for the character he plays in the twin peaks franchise And even if Lynch never made the connection between Ivers and Sunset Boulevard, there's no doubt in my mind that he's a huge fan of the film. We'll explore that in the near future. But even if Lynch didn't make the Sunset Boulevard connection, I suspect Ivers had a great influence on the director's life, which is often unacknowledged. Ivers was passionate about meditation, having practiced it since the late 1970s, Lynch discovered Transcendental Meditation around the time he met Ivers. As the story goes, it was Lynch's sister, Martha Levisey, I believe, who introduced Lynch to TM, but on the whole, Lynch seems to have made an effort to downplay his links to Ivers. The musician gets exactly one reference in Lynch's quasi autobiography, Room to Dream, and that only acknowledges Ivor's performance in Heaven for Eraserhead. Further, Ivor's may have inspired some of Lynch's later work. Ivor's diary was taken from the crime scene by his friend, Peter Raffleson, who more will be said in a moment. But anyway, the diary contained references to some kind of deal Ivers was trying to make in San Francisco. and He was nervous about it, but enamored with what the money he could do from this deal for him. Some have speculated that he was referencing a drug deal that he was involved in. As I'm sure Twin Peaks fans are well aware, Laura Palmer's diary, both her official and her secret ones, are crucial to the show's storyline. Her secret diary is held by a character named Harold Smith. Ivers actually had a close friend named Harold Smith. He met this guy through director Tim Hunter, who may have been the one who introduced Lynch and Ivers. And remember, Ivers and Lynch both seemed to have met each other in 1972, the same year Lynch took up Transcendental Meditation. So it goes. But anyway, back to Ivor's saga. After relocating to L.A., he made a game effort to launch his music career with the contacts he had made in Hollywood. In 1974, he drops his follow-up to Night of the Blue Communion. It's a remarkable album called *Terminal Love. It's been described as one of the strangest pop albums ever released, and that's pretty much spot on. The album feels as though it was recorded by an alien intelligence. It vaguely understands the concept of a pop song, but something is lost in translation. Nominally, every song on Terminal Love is under four, four minutes and follows various hit formulas of the era. There's a little hard rock, a little blue-eyed soul, some hints of glam, and so on but there's just something slightly off-kilter about each song, be it the arrangement, the bizarre lyrics, and especially Ivor's vocals. He deliberately sings much of the album above his range and employed novel recording methods to alter his voice even more. It's definitely a bit like David Bowie around the Berlin era, but honestly even a little weirder. Elsewhere, he takes a novel approach to the arrangements, such as using his considerable harmonica skills to mimic synthesizers. Despite Iger's background in blues, the album rarely feels rootsy. And that's especially interesting given the time frame. Again, this is 1974, this is like the heyday of you know the Eagles, supposedly all this folk and country influences made the music more quote unquote authentic. Though I personally would never apply the term authentic to the Eagles in any capacity other than authentic shit, but that's just me. Anyway, back to something of quality, namely terminal love. While not overly sci-fi centric, it does feel futuristic despite having been recorded in that year of 1974, which is so mysterious in its own right. But anyway, Terminal Love is kind of a proto-New Wave slash post-punk affair, but it's aged better than many of the bands in those genres, especially New Wave. Being a post-punk album from 1974 gives the record a certain timelessness. It's like it came to us from another dimension, where pop music trends were ever so slightly different than our own. No one particular thing is major, but taken altogether... It feels like a departure from pop despite Ivor's gold record designs. Obviously, it tanked massively when it dropped. Even if it had come out three or four years later, as new wave and post-punk were taking shape, it still would have been a challenge to find its audience. Despite its parallels to those styles, Ivers had a much more positive and even kitsy sensibility. His flamboyance, which some interpreted as hints of his aforementioned bisexuality, rubbed more than a few punks the wrong way in latter years. But more on that later. Anyway, the death blow for Ivers' rock and roll career arguably came not from terminal love, but an opening slot for Fleetwood Mac that he had secured through his said industry contacts. Needless to say, even if Ivers crushed it, his music would have been a tough sell to Fleetwood Mac fans. Ivers did have a reputation as a seductive live performer, but he decided to go full punk a few years before punk was a thing when opening for the Mac He came out on the stage clad only in a diaper and delivered a highly theatrical performance, snarling and posturing his way through the songs. The booing was so fierce, Ivers had to depart the stage at the L.A. Amphitheater before his set was even completed, so he got booed off the stage in his home turf, no less. While Ivers later carved out a niche for himself, working on soundtracks and writing songs for other people, this pretty much closed the door on the possibility of him becoming a rock god. Still, this didn't prevent Ivers and Fisher from settling into L.A.'s most storied rock and roll community. Yes, folks, Laurel Canyon. They moved in not long after relocating to L.A. and remained there for nearly a decade. This is extremely interesting on any number of levels. I'm assuming most people listening to this are familiar with Dave McGowan's work on Loyal Canyon via the classic weird scenes inside the canyon. While I think McGowan overreaches at times, his overall thesis is highly compelling. Regardless... There's no question Laurel Canyon has witnessed a rash of bizarre murders over the years, but especially from the late 1960s up to the early 1980s. Probably the most sensational was the so-called Wonderland murders, also known as the Four on the Floor murders. This concerned the Wonderland gang, a Laurel Canyon-based crew who were significant players in LA's highly lucrative uh, cocaine trade during the early 1980s. On July 1st, 1981, four members of the gang were found dead at their Laurel Canyon headquarters. Officially, the murders were never technically solved, but it's widely believed that they were carried out on Eddie Nash's orders after the Wonderland gang had robbed him. Nash was tried for these crimes, but he was later uh, acquitted, though there has been considerable evidence to come out to prove that he did, in fact, order the hits. Nash was a Palestinian immigrant and club owner who became a powerful organized crime figure in L.A. during the 1970s. Good old porn star John Holmes, a loose affiliate of the Wonderland gang, is widely believed to have been the one who sold them out to Nash. Uh, And for those of you unaware, this whole fiasco has been depicted in two films. It was featured in a heavily fictionalized account in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights film, which gets into the whole backdrop of the porno industry, and also in a more direct adaptation, the aptly titled Wonderland, starring Val Kilmore. Boogie Lands is generally considered a classic, while Wonderlands was highly trashed, though for my money, Wonderlands is probably a slightly better film, though I'm probably going to get flamed for saying that, and certainly it's much more accurate to what unfolded. In fact, on the whole, it's actually a pretty faithful retelling of this whole incident, which is probably one of the reasons why it was uh, rather relentlessly flamed upon its release. But anyway, let's get back to the Wonderland Gang here. The two most noteworthy members for our purposes here were the head of it, Ron Lanius, and the biker David Lind. The former was an Air Force veteran who served in Vietnam. This also seems to have been where Lanius got into drug trafficking. He was ultimately dishonorably discharged for smuggling heroin back from Vietnam in the coffins of dead soldiers. By the mid-1970s, he had a fearsome reputation in the Sacramento area. Police linked him to 27 open homicides at the time of his own murder. He was charged with murdering a police informant in 1974, but the charges were dropped after a key witness died in a police shooting that was supposedly unrelated. Lanius was convicted of trafficking in drugs across the U.S. border in Mexico in, the, in that same year. He was out on parole uh, by the late 1970s, having served three years of his sentence. Lonius encountered Lynn while he was serving time. Lynn was a hardcore heroin addict and a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. That would be the infamous Nazi prison gang. This was at a time when the Abbey B had picked up a fair share of Manson's followers during the early 1970s. I have no idea if Lynn was... In those circles, but the Manson family was known to have extensive links with biker gangs prior to their alliance with the Aryan Brotherhood in the early 70s. Lynn may have traveled us in such circles back then, uh, but again, I had no way of confirming any of this, and I had no evidence of it, so again, it's just speculation, of thought. Anyway, Lynn was brought in uh, to the Wonderland outfit by Lanius in 1981 to assist him with the growing operation he had in Moral Canyon. Lynn was the only significant member of the Wonderland gang not to be murdered by Nash's people. He was conveniently out of the house at the time. He was also, like another figure, will soon explore at length a sometime police informant. Lynn also was suspected. Is uh, allegedly died in 1995, but there's been a lot of speculation that he was actually uh, shuffled into the Witness Protection Program at the time. Anyway, the Wonderland gang is so named because their Laurel Canyon homes located on Wonderland Avenue. Imagine that. While I haven't been able to locate the exact uh, place where Ivor's house was... It's described as being just off of Wonderland Avenue, hence it couldn't have been more than a mile or two from the infamous Wonderland Drug House. This is especially in light of Iver's interesting, in light of the fact of Iver's murder, which happened just a little over two years later from when the Wonderland Gang was killed. The listeners will recall that Iver's was bludgeoned to death. His skull effectively bashed in and split open. And this is exactly how the Wonderland crew were dispatched as well. They were beaten to death, mostly using either baseball bats or rods. In both cases, the level of violence and display of the bodies was shocking. Oh, but it gets even better. Another motive put forward for Ivers' murder was drugs. While Ivers was never regarded as a heavy drug user, there were persistent rumblings that he was trying to procure a large amount of ecstasy. That in and of itself is curious as ecstasy was still relatively unknown in 1983. It's interesting to note, however, that one of the victims of the Manson family, the Tate House, was involved in trafficking MDA. The Tate House, again, though, is not in Laurel Canyon, but in nearby Benedict Canyon. And MDMA is different from ecstasy, which is MDMA. But they're in the same family. And would have been and used in fairly exclusive circles for either drug Even up to the late 19, up to the early 1980s. It really wasn't until the mid to late 1980s when both MDMA and MDA started to become more casually used. So chances are this probably would have been more, you know, Hollywood types using these drugs back then. It's also interesting to note that a close collaborator of Ivers at the time of his death was a bloke named David Job. You'll be hearing a lot more about Mr. Jove in just a moment. But for now, it's worth noting he's the main source for the drug deal gone wrong theory concerning Ivor's death. Jove also had a long standing history of trafficking at the time of Ivor's death. And he was, by all accounts, an absolute fiend for cocaine. His habit was legendary. I've been unable to determine if Jove knew the Wonderland gang, but it seems highly probable given the circles that he traveled in. While I have no hard evidence Ivers' death and the Wonderland murders are connected, Ivers' close proximity to the gang, the similarities between Ivers' murder and the killings at Wonderland Avenue, Ivers' reputed involvement in drug trafficking, and his relationship with Jove indicate that this is an avenue that warrants further investigation. At the time of his murder, Ivers had separated from Lucy Fisher. This resulted in his departure from Laurel Canyon for Little little Tokyo in 1982, a little over a year after the Wonderland murders. And I believe that they would have unfolded the murders, that is to say right around the time that Fisher and Ivers were in the process of separating. This also might have potentially been around the time that uh, Fishers may have been having an affair with Francis Ford Coppola. Again, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are aware, but Coppola got into a bit of controversy himself with the whole Cotton Club murders thing, which also involves good old producer, cocaine, Robert Evans, and uh the death of um Roy Radin, the guy who was linked to the whole Son of Sam thing. But again, Coppola did not become involved with the Cotton Club film, I think, until 82 or 83. This was... After Fisher's had stopped working for Colt Law. And I don't know how much involvement they had at this time, but again, it's interesting. All these circles seem to have been bogged down in controversy around this time. But anyway, um, there may have been a purely financial motive for Ivers uh, moving out of Laurel Canyon simply because he couldn't afford it anymore without Fisher. So, while he wasn't, at least reportedly, desperate for money, uh, he was not able to maintain the same lifestyle that he had had previously with his studio executive girlfriend. With the contacts he had in Little Canyon, he may have seen dealing as a way to raise some capital, and given his former close proximity to the Waterland gang, perhaps he went through an old network? Well, we'll get back to that later. But to return to Ivor's time in Laurel Canyon, his house earned a reputation as a kind of 24-hour salon during the 1970s because of the curious cast of characters that turned up there. A regular fixture was Peter Raffleson, I previously mentioned. He later became a successful songwriter in his own right. Among his hits were Open Your Heart by Madonna. Raffleson was the son of Bob Raffleson, the dr- director of such films as Head, Five Easy Pieces, and The King of Marvin Gardens. Those of you who have read my book, The Art, are already familiar with good old Bob Raffleson. He was a co founder of the legendary production company BBS, along with producer Bert Snyder. BBS largely created the independent and art house features as we know it today, beginning with the legendary Easy Rider. So, besides revolutionizing the industry, uh the circles around bbs especially bert snyder had a lot of interesting connections ranging from eslon to the black panthers and the yippies for decades bert snyder was the de facto head of hollywood's activist circles he was a financial patron to daniel ellsberg and Huey newton of the black panthers the circles also overlap with those at the Plansky tate residence and he was probably more responsible than anyone for launching the career of Jack Nicholson. He even lent Nicholson the money to buy his legendary Mulholland uh, pad. So Peter Raffleson's dad was already well-connected in some very peculiar circles. And he looked up to Ivers as a mentor. He was a regular guest at Ivers Royal Canyon Home since he was a teenager. There, he would have rubbed elbows with a fair amount of musicians. But the Hollywood types were the ones who really opened eyes. Through his relationship with Doug Kenny, Ivers befriended many of the top comedians of this era. At the forefront were John Belushi and Harold Ramis, both of whom were regulars at Ivers throughout the 1970s. John Belushi, of course, famously overdosed on the speedball, a combination of heroin and cocaine, on March 5, 1982, two days short of a year from Peter Ivor's murder. Well, I have no reason to believe that there's anything nefarious per se about Volusia's death. Well, actually, I take that back. We'll look we'll at that possibility here in a little bit. But anyway, the close proximity to Ivor's murder is curious. But factoring in Kinney's death in 1980 and you're left with a surprising amount of deaths linked to Ivor's Laurel Canyon pad. In fairness, both Belushi and Kenny had serious substance abuse problems while Kenny was also prone to bouts of depression. Still, it's odd Ivers and so many close friends of his turned up dead at such young ages and in such a close time frame to one another. Finally, we come to Harold Ramus. Ramis is well known for his work behind the cameras he is in front. He co-wrote Animal House and Caddyshack with Kenny, along with such classics as National Lampoon's Vacation, Stripes, Meatballs, and a personal favorite of mine, Groundhog Day, the latter of which he also directed along with Caddyshack. But Ramus is easily most well-known for writing and co-starring in the original Ghostbusters films. His Dr. Egon Spengler character is iconic. I've talked about the Ghostbusters franchise a lot on the farm's Patreon. I believe the series, and especially the first two films, are among the most occultic things to ever come out of Hollywood. And like many people, I have long credited the metaphysics of the series to Dan Aykroyd, who's interested in ufology, the supernatural, and all kinds of other high weirdness. But more recently, I've come to believe that Ramus probably deserves far more credit in this regard than he's often given. Ramus's interest and friendship with Ivers was initially centered around Ivers' spirituality. Since college, Ivers had been fascinated by Buddhism. It was also during this time that he took up meditation, as I've mentioned earlier. Upon relocating to LA, he embraced both yoga and martial arts. Elsewhere, his close collaborator, David Job, had a keen interest in ceremonial magic, Scientology, and ufology, as well as ESP. Many of these interests were incorporated into New Wave Theater, which Job created and Ivers hosted. But Ramus was also a frequent guest on New Wave Theater and and continued to collaborate with Job after Ivers' death. It was Ivers' spiritual discipline that initially captivated Ramus. Ramus's then wife, Annie, was also into yoga, and this served as the basis for what became a close relationship with Ivers from both of them. When they explored Ghostbusters, Jimmy Fallon Gong, Reed, and Wendy Painting wondered if Ramus had links to Esalon. I haven't found evidence of this, but I would be shocked if Ivers did not make the trek a time or two. Just noted he had a strong interest in Eastern spirituality since his college years. Further, the circles around Peter Raffles and his parents were early Esalen backers. I suspect much of Ramus's knowledge of occult, conspiratorial, and high strangeness-related topics derived from Ivers and the circles around him. Indeed, the first Ghostbusters movie seems to have been heavily influenced by the metaphysics behind New York Theater, which we'll get into a bit later on. On that note, it seems like a good time to explore New Wave Theater. But to manage that, we need to consider its enigmatic creator, mastermind, David Jove. So this guy was born David Snyderman in Toronto during 1942. He seems to have been born into a solidly upper-middle-class household. His family lived in Forest Hill, an old-scale an old upscale neighborhood in Toronto that is one of the most affluent in the entire city. His father was said to be in real estate. He attended Forest Collegiate. In some accounts, he is said to have been a child actor who became a folk musician and an occasional Shakespearean actor as the 1960s set in. By the mid-1960s, Jove was firmly entrenched in Toronto's counterculture. He was especially well known in the music scene and befriended such folks as Neil Young during this time, probably Leonard Cohen as well. He was also dealing drugs by the late 1960s and apparently had several run-ins with the police. A friend, David Altman, not the agent, reports that local police stole Joe's stash and he retaliated by stealing it back from the police. There were rumblings that he was plotting to dose Toronto's water supply with LSD at one point. This may have set the stage for his exile from Canada, which was ongoing. But before then, he acquired a dedicated group of followers around him. He referred to them as bohats, a term he picked up from H.P. Bovlatsky, The Russian mystic defined it as, quote, the essence of cosmic electricity, an a term for the primordial light, the ever-present electrical energy and ceaseless destructive and formative power, the universal propelling vital force, at once the propeller and resolute. Jove is described as being utterly obsessed with the occult going back to his Toronto days. His house in Moulton, Ontario, was filled with books on the occult. In his basement, there was a pentagram painted with magical symbols. The property also had a barn with a loft where he hung a massive poster of Alistair Crowley. By all accounts, Crowley was by far his biggest occult influence. Job was a member of the Toronto OTO chapter, which, for those of you unaware, was the uh, med- uh, secret society, magical order, whatever The Crowley was a big figure in. And at times, Jove himself claimed to be the head of the Toronto OTO. He was also a passionate collector of Crowley's books. He even founded a publishing house at his own home, which he dubbed Dove Press, to reproduce Crowley's works. Among the titles he published were Atlantis, Moonchild, Diary of Drug Fiend, and Little Essays of Truth. He later taught Crowley's magic in theory and practice while living in L.A. He claimed that one of his students was the legendary cyberpunk author William Gibson. Later, Joe became quite taken with Jane Roberts' Seth books, and he was also obsessed with Scientology. Though, as far as I can tell, he was never a member of the church. It's possible. Joe may have picked up his interest in Scientology via the process church of the final judgment now while i think the process is massively overhyped and don't like contributing more to this in this case i think raising the specter of the process is warranted Jove would later ingrain himself with circles around the rolling stones which we'll get to in just a second this is at the same time singer Marion Faithful was dating Mick Jagger and was also in contact with the Process Church. As is well known, the Process founders Robert and Marion Grimstone were former Scientologists who, in depth, who adopted the techniques of Scientology to their own system. While traveling in these circles, it would hardly be surprising if Jove encountered the process or their literature and became fascinated by their variation on Scientology. This seems to be consistent with Job's interest in Scientology, which revolved around its techniques rather than its mythos. Job was quite taken with UFOs as well. He was especially devoted to the Majestic Twelve documents. From the late 1980s onward, he repeatedly tried to develop films and TV series centered around aliens. This went into overdrive after the success of The X-Files in 1993. He even managed to make a film in the 1990s called Stranger Than Love. This was a kind of incest-laden time travel thing that Sally Kirkland was somehow coached into starring. Unsurprisingly, it's rarely been seen by the public. Naturally, Jove was into conspiracy theories as well, and he was particularly fond of the work of William Milton Cooper, considering Behold a Pale Horse to be a near-religious text. Jove even went so far as to arrange a guest appearance by Bill Cooper on an L.A. public access talk show. And this famously ended with a brawl between Cooper and the host. In the late 1990s, Jove launched one of the earliest conspiracy websites, thewholetruth.com. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to Jove's activities during the late 1960s, which had been the source of ample speculation. In 1967, Joe made his way to the UK with a collection of passports sporting different names and nationalities and an attaché case that would become the stuff of legend. Besides a wide variety of LSD, it contained hashish and even DMT. His trek there featured a stopover in NYC where he landed himself in a Greenwich Village mental hospital to avoid deportation. After escaping, he made his way to Europe. Upon arriving in the UK, he befriended Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones and spread the gospel of LST among the rock-and-rollers. Supposedly, he was the person who turned John Lennon a lot. This quickly him earned him the moniker of the Asic King. Besides Lennon, he was also said to have turned on the Stones and other members of the Beatles. Jove gained infamy in the UK for the role he played in the Rolling Stones' Redland drug bust. What actually happened has been hotly contested. Keith Richards claimed that his Belgian chauffeur sold the band out to the uh, the newspaper, The News of the World. The paper then alerted the police in a bid to create headlines. The police used Jove to stage the bust. For years, there have been persistent allegations that Jove was more than an unwilling informant, however. People close to the Stones have accused Jove of being an asset of the CIA, and in more recent years, he, has said, he is said to have been either a CIA agent or somebody working in the FBI's co-Intel Pro. On the one hand, Jove's movements after London lend credence to this. He apparently bounced around the world before settling in LA's underground during the mid-1970s. Despite the alleged specter of criminal charges in Canada lingering over Joe for the rest of his life, he never seems to have faced a serious threat of deportation or extradition. And American authorities surely would have been aware of these charges after he turned up in the Ivers murder. But despite being a wanted man in Canada and decades of involvement in trafficking drugs in the U.S., he never seems to have faced serious legal repercussions. On the other hand, Job was by all accounts a serious cokehead and mentally unstable, which makes me weary of the notion that he was an active agent of an intelligence service. It's certainly possible he avoided jail time by acting as an informant. Many a dealer has avoided legal repercussions for years, by operating in this fashion and selling out their contemporaries. But this hardly makes him a spy. It's likely his wealthy family combined with the willingness to sell out other dealers is what kept him out of prison. At best, he was probably an unwitting asset. And remember, this is a man obsessed with conspiracy theories. Someone who promoted Bill Cooper for years. Much of the last decade of Job's life revolved around pushing conspiriology through his website. Besides the majestic documents, he also embraced things like Montauk and Ong's hat. Either this is a sign of his gullibility or cunning, as all of these things were basically proto-alternate reality games. I tend to lean towards the former as Job comes off as a true believer time and again in his writings. Still, there's a lot about Job that raises red flags. One of the most bizarre connections Job claimed to have had was to Chicago gangster Marcus Lipsky. Allegedly, Lipsky was one of the main figures behind the Chicago outfit's takeover of criminal rackets in Dallas, in this capacity, he was said to be an associate of Lee Harvey Oswald's assassin Jack Ruby. Lipsky, bizarrely, was also the founder and longtime odor of Ready Whip, a popular form of whipped cream, and the animation studio TrueLine. You just can't make this shit up, right? Jove claimed that Lipsky lent him an electric piano that he never returned. Jove's longtime wife is equally fascinating in her own right. Her name was Lotus Weinstock, who some of you may be familiar with. She was a pioneering female stand-up comedian. She was also engaged to legendary Lenny Bruce at the time of his death in 1966. She was also inevitably a longtime friend of Paul Krasner, a Yippie, and the longtime publisher of The Realist, who went on to work for porn king Larry Flint during the late 1970s. Interestingly, Krasner was one of the Yippies who raised the possibility of inserting LSD into Chicago's water supply during the 1968 Democratic Convention. Obviously, this is quite similar to allegations that Job was plotting to do the same thing in Toronto. However, I don't know if Job had hooked up with Weinstock in these circles before 1969. The daughter he had with Weinstock was born in December of that year, so she would have gotten pregnant in early 1969. Most likely they probably had ties prior to this. Their daughter is also worth noting. Her name is Lily Hayden. She was a child prodigy on violin and subsequently became one of the most sought-after session players on set instrument for rock and pop artists. She's also a vocalist, actress, and composer. She's appeared on albums by the Jayhawks, No Doubt, Pointer from Pyros, Brandy, and Tom Petty. She's released her own solo albums, and she's even appeared sporadically in films since she was a, to- a child. Some of her film work includes roles in Easy Money and the Michael Keaton film, Jack Frost. As a child, Weinstock raised Hayden in an L.A. commune run by a cult known as the Brotherhood of the Source. The sex patriarch was a fellow who called himself Father Yod. He was a former U.S. Marine who had served in World War II and later became a Hollywood stuntman. Born James Edward Baker, he first gained a following in L.A. when he founded The Source Restaurant in 1969. It was famous for serving entirely organic vegetarian dishes. It was frequented by such celebrities as Marlon Brando, Julie Christie, and John Lennon during its heyday. And it was quite successful, providing much of the funding for Yacht's cult joe was on the lam for much of the early 1970s but after settling in l.a weinstock continued to live in the commune with her daughter for a time in fact joe and weinstock never seemed to have shared a house together for the extended period of time they were married joe took up residence at a converted storefront in the fairfax district of los angeles in 1974 and remained there for 22 years so this is L.A.'s historic Jewish center. Job's residence was only a half a block from Cantor's, the legendary Jewish deli that is famous for its Monte Cristo's. And Job was apparently every bit as obsessed with Cantor's as Ivers was with Schwab's and which David Lynch was with Bob's Big Boy, but I digress. Job's residence became known as The Cape. There was almost no light in the place, and it was largely furnished with Job's musical and video equipment. Secured by security cameras and a door described as something out of medieval castle, it was here that Job partied deep into the night with his associates. Occasionally this included celebrities like Ram Nash, Jackson Brown, Daryl Hannah, and Ghostbuster Dan Aykroyd. Joe was also a friend of legendary character actor Henry Dean Stanton, a longtime friend of Jack Nicholson, and a regular many of David Lynch's post 1980s works. Inevitably, he also knew Mama Cass Elliott. You just knew someone from Mamas and Papas was going to turn up in these circles, right? <laughs> anyway, it's possible Fairfax is where Joe first met Ivan Rubin, I believe, of the Jewish Defense League. This bloke was eventually arrested for federal terrorism charges and allegedly committed suicide while incarcerated in 2002. So, that's a pretty good overview of the larger-than-life figure of David Jove. Let's talk a little bit about New Wave Theater for a moment. Jove was unquestionably the driving force behind the show. During the late 1970s, Jove became obsessed with punk and hardcore. He wanted to make music videos for the bands. This led him to filming shows at various LA punk clubs. It was out of these ventures that the concept of New Wave Theater emerged. Footage from live punk shows would be bookend by opening and closing monologues with a host that tied everything together. Enter Peter Ivers. Why was Job's creation and vision... It was Ivor's magnetism and charisma that made it a success. Sporting wardrobes like oversized sunglasses mixed with a ballerina's tutu, Ivor's quickly became iconic in L.A. as the host. Soon, they were filming out of the Burbank Studio Center in the Paradise Club. A typical episode was under half an hour, with intros and outros running no more than 90 seconds and 22 minutes of band footage on average the rest was filled up with fake commercials Jove largely wrote himself Jove also edited all the footage in the cave he his work in this capacity was groundbreaking largely establishing the format for modern music videos occasionally he would even insert subliminal images and such into this footage New Wave Theater was picked up at the Fledgling USA Network and predated MTV by at least a year. Many have long viewed MTV as a watered-down, commercialized version of New Wave Theater. Further buzz was added to New Wave Theater when Peter brought in his Hollywood contacts as quote-unquote ghost hunts. Let's share the stage with him. These included such figures as Beverly D'Angelo, Doug Kinney, John Belushi, Eddie Murphy, Harold Ramos, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, and even good old David Lynch. The scripts Ivers was working on at the time of his murder was partly inspired by New Wave Theater and its atmosphere. After Ivers' death, there was an attempt to uh, bring New Wave Theater into the mainstream. It was rechristened The Top. While Jobe maintained total control over the show, it was actually Help Ramus who got it made. Ramus also arranged for Chevy Chase to host the show and for guest appearances from the likes of fellow Ghostbusters Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. Filming on the pilot was a disaster. Jobe had never worked with a professional film crew before and proved to be incapable of directing an episode. Elsewhere, Chevy Chase got into a brawl with several of the punks and departed in the middle of the film filming. This marked the end of both Jove and Chevy Chase's involvement. Remus took over and brought in Annie Kaufman as the host. And this actually proved to be Kaufman's last live appearance. He also died around this time, or excuse me, disappeared, depending upon how you look at this. Anyway, the show managed strong ratings, but uh, Ramus declined to continue it. All right, so as we're getting into the home stretch here, let's return to Ivor's death. In case it hasn't become apparent by now, a common suspect for Ivor's murder is David Joe. And there's certainly merit to this. While New Wave Theater was Job's baby, Ivers was the star, and at the time of his murder, Ivers was reportedly not only plotting his exit from New Wave Theater, but also working on a script utilizing elements of it. While Job was the mastermind, it was arguably Ivers' star power, both his own and uh, from the people that he brought in as guests, that made New Wave Theater a hit. Without Ivers, New Wave Theater would have faltered the way the top did, or so the argument goes. Jove, perpetually strung out on cocaine and poised to lose his meal ticket, went simple and murdered Ivers. He had a motive, a reputation for violence, and would have been aware of Ivers' physical prowess. Hence, he knew he had to take Ivers out before he could counter him. But there are problems with this. One figure who supported the Jove as murderer theory over the years, or at least has indicated this, is Harold Ramus. Ghostbuster has regularly voiced his low opinion of Jove at every opportunity. Yet, Ramus opted to keep collaborating with Jove for nearly a year after Ivers was murdered, and even helped him revive New Wave Theater as the top why would he do this for a man who he thought murdered one of his best friends still ramus's attitude is fairly common among ivor's hollywood backers in regards to joe joe was also fingered by a private detective hired by lucy fisher to work on the crime another common su- other common suspects put forth in these circles were the punk rockers, who were also much closer to Joe than Ivers and his crew. The argument goes that homophobia was quite rampant in the L.A. punk scene at the time, which is pretty accurate. There was suspicion that Ivers was bisexual, as I've noted before. His personality was certainly flamboyant, and he would occasionally make a playful gay come on to the punks on the Way theater. In this scenario, someone took issue with these come-ons and murdered Ivers in a hate crime. That seems like a bit of a stretch, and no one really seems to have taken it seriously. Jove is a far more compelling suspect. Another figure who's long linked the acid king to the killings is a fringe Hollywood screenwriter and journalist named Michael Dare, also known as Captain Prevent. Dare was a staff writer briefly on the top and occasionally visited the taping New World Theater. It's possible Harold Ramis is who brought him in to the top. While Dare has long described himself as a writer, he's most well known as a drug dealer. The client who put him on the map in that regard was John Belushi. During the filming of 1941, Belushi became a regular at Dare's West Hollywood bungalow. It was the beginning of a brief but highly lucrative relationship for Dare. This is interesting because in addition to attempting to link Jove to Ivor's murder, Dare is also the one pushing the narrative that John Belushi's overdose was induced by the LAPD. As the story goes, the woman who provided Belushi with the fatal speedball, Kathy Smith, was a police informant. She had informed the LAPD that Robert De Niro and Robin Williams would be joining Belushi at his hotel room in the Chateau Marimont to get high the night that he died. So the LAPD instructed Smith to keep feeding Belushi drugs until his fellow actors arrived, and this resulted in the fatal overdose. In recent years, even more mystery has been added to Belushi's death. Scott Thorson, a former associate of Eddie Nash's, alleges that the cocaine and heroin Smith fed Belushi on the night of the overdose came from Eddie Nash. Personally, I find Thorson's claims of the dope coming from Nash, rather than Dare linking it to the LAPD, a little more credible. But that isn't to say that they both can't be true. Again, there's also a good chance that David Jove was a police informant as well for the LAPD, and David Lind of the Wonderland gang was almost certainly a police informant for the LAPD. And yes, that brings us back to the Wonderland murders. So let's step back for a moment and consider the claims that Ivers had gotten into drug trafficking. Jove speculated Ivers was killed as part of a professional hit carried out by a Redwood City-based Somalian gang he burned on a drug deal. Seemingly, this would have no connections with the people linked to Wonderland. But Ron Linnaeus and David Lynn were both based out of Sacramento before relocating to L.A., Now, Sacramento is in Northern California, though it is over two hours from Redwood City, so not super close. And as far as I can tell, Eddie Nash had no links to such circles either. But this is assuming Joe was telling the truth about the Simoleon gang. If he suspected a link to the Wonderland killings, he may have found it prudent to keep quiet on that regard. It's also possible Ivers or Joe became aware of of this Redwood City outfit through their connections to the Wonderland gang or such fellow travelers. So, to recap, Ivers lived in Laurel Canyon for nearly a decade, right off of Wonderland Avenue. During this time, Doug Kinney and John Belushi were regular guests at his house. Both turned up dead prior to Ivers. Belushi may have overdosed on drugs supplied by people connected to Eddie Nash. Later, Ivers is murdered, beaten to death in a fashion similar to the Wonderland victims. Eddie Nash is widely believed to be the man who ordered the killings of the Wonderland gang. It may well all be a coincidence... Ivers being killed as part of botched robbery is probably the most plausible explanation we still have. But possible links to the Wonderland murders seems far more plausible than Job and certainly a homophobic punk rocker or a scorned lover killing Ivers. It's also interesting that many of Ivers' Hollywood friends seem to have tried to put the blame on Job and or the punks. And this again begs the question of whether this was out of a conviction or a desire to shift attention away from the rash of strange deaths unfolding in these circles during this time. So to wrap up, I just wanted to note the undeniable influence the sagas had on several films. I've already addressed how David Lynch may have been influenced by this and incorporated some of these... uh, Aspects of Ivor's murder in Twin Peaks. But it's also interesting to note that as Ivor's murder was playing out around this time, it was also when Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd were writing Ghostbusters. John Belushi was originally envisioned playing the role that was later taken on by Bill Murray. Ramis, Belushi, and Aykroyd, but especially the first two, were closely tied to the scene around New Wave theater. But between Ivor's passion for Eastern spirituality and Job's obsession with Crowley's Scientology and conspiracy theories, it seems obvious that this had to have had an influence on in the writing of the film. Job was also keenly interested in ESP to boot. I would frankly be shocked if the whole zeitgeist around the way theater did not influence the writing of Ghostbusters on some level. Obviously, Aykroyd had long standing interest in high strangeness, but I suspect Ramus picked up a lot of the stuff from Ivers and Jove. He was apparently enamored enough with said Zyges to, to try and revive new wave theater with a man he suspected of murdering his buddy, after all. Another film that seems to have been undeniably influenced by this milieu is Alex uh, Cox's cult classic Repo Man. Virtually all of David Job's obsessions, UFOs, Scientology, conspiracy theories, punk rock, are central to this film. And of course, many of the L.A. punk bands on the soundtrack appeared on New Wave Theater. Recall that Peter Ivers himself had sold a script treatment based on New Wave Theater just prior to his death. I suspect he wasn't the only one seeing dollar signs after it became a surprise success on cable. Just based on some of Ivor's monologues alone, I can't... Just based on some of the context of Ivor's monologues alone, I can't imagine that Alex Cox wasn't a a fan and influenced by it while he was writing Rebo Man. And on a final note, the L.A. punk scene. In Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, David McGowan essentially argues that the famed Little Canyon scene and the much broader L.A. rock scene of the 60s and 70s was a psyop conducted by national security trolls. I think this takes things maybe a little too far, but is not without merit. And here we find the storied L.A. punk scene being boosted by Peter Ivers, a Harvard-educated lad from a well-to-do family and plush with Hollywood contacts, including an ex who was a senior executive at Warner Brothers, on the one hand. And on the other hand, Crowley a. David Jove, who also turns up in the Rolling Stone's infamous Redland drug bus and who has for years been described as a spook by various circles. I Again, I don't buy that Joe was a spy, possibly an unwilling intelligence asset, but there seems to be little question that he was a police informant. And while I've seen nothing to indicate Ivers was engaged in any spooky activity, he was a member of exclusive groups such as Harvard's Signet Society. So... I'm not going to go there, but I know folks will. So I'll just say, it's interesting that this is the pair that gets someone like John Belushi into the L.A. punk scene, has them jamming with a band like Fear, and brings these kinds of characters into things like Saturday Night Live. Uh, Reviewing all this, it seems clear to me that the L.A. punk scene is so legendary in no small part because of Ivers and Jove and especially Ivers boosting it to a lot of his Hollywood friends so do with that as you will and on that note I am going to sign off for now as always I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support and with that good night and good luck to you all
1: (music) me up out here in my wiki up sick and tired of fucking up sick and tired of pushing up voodoo blue got juice in it swallow what i'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this i took it to the gold J. boo ray my people there they feeling me down low skin roll more characters than stephen king said i'm just working at the quarry y'all i ain't in a hurry y'all Come on baby, pick me up, out here in my wiki up, stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell, I tell you what, put it up and knock it down, moving on that big rap. come on mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out, say 1, 2, 3, Geronimo, jump baby, we gotta go, hands tied, blindfold, jump until that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out, cause they done let the wolves out. Coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Screaming with me Scream Geronimo Never getting used to it Got bales of weed And catapulted with santa We're diffused in it Shoot it over the castle While the migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the great While the greatest walls Are bound to fall So legalize it Vato We're about to Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it. No need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer. Everybody, even a realized if a farmer don't make cash money when we rock the stash, honey. Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ. BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP. DHS and Army. Honeywell and L3. Razor wires. UABs. Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito. Not the Georgia you're looking for. See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hooded blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If great white father don't make payroll Forget about your maple It's just the one thing That ain't too government here, but that war administration's our whole civilization, what?